Good morning, everyone. Uh, We're in week four of our series going through the book of Ephesians. And before we kind of get into the text for today, I'd like to go back to week one and kind of revisit the theme of this series, because that theme of this series will become incredibly important for us to understand this week's passage. So in week one, if you were here, you remember, we were introduced to this big, giant Greek word, anikephaliosestai, and it's translated as the word unite in the English Standard Version. Big, giant word that comes across in English as one word, unite. The issue and the problem is, is that oftentimes words in other languages have such a heavy and large meaning that one or two words in another language, in this case English, can't carry the burden of that word. And so on week one, I tried to introduce us to three images or concepts that could try and help communicate what this one Greek word that's translated as unite means. Because Paul is making a crazy claim here. The Apostle Paul is making the radical claim that in and through the poor Jewish peasant who died the slave's death, Jesus, tortured upon a cross, that in and through that death and that man, God is uniting all things. Now think about that for a moment. Jewish man under the oppression of the Roman Empire, poor, peasant, lowly upbringing, he dies the slave man's death, crucified, naked upon a cross. And somehow in and through that, all things are being brought together. This is the uniting thing. And in in other Bible translations, that word unite may be translated as summing up or gathering together or bringing together. But there's three images from week one I just want to revisit to help us sort of grab a hold of this concept. First, first image was from Star Wars. And I asked the question, I was extremely disappointed because I got uh, several, several wrong answers to begin with. Uh, I said, in Star Wars, who's the chosen one? A couple people said Luke Skywalker, someone dared to say Ray. Um, <laughs> and the thing is, look, um, there's no spoilers, like I said week one, no spoilers. This is all from the trilogy that's been done over 40 years ago, the original trilogy. So if you haven't seen Return of the Jedi, I don't care um, if I blow anything for you. But in that trilogy, the chosen one is Anakin Skywalker. Now the problem is, by the time you get to the end of the last movie, he's still a bad guy. He's Darth Vader, he's still Mufasa, he's still, you know, guy, not good. But Darth Vader becomes a good guy. And he defeats the main bad guy, Emperor Palpatine. Now the important part is that the logic of Star Wars says that the chosen one has to bring balance to the force. So everything taking place in the original trilogy is all leading up to one point when the chosen one brings balance to the force. In that story, Darth Vader, in his return to good and his killing of the emperor, he sums up and brings together all the pieces that were left open in the trilogy. That's the summing up of all things in the person of Anakin Skywalker, the chosen one. Another way to think about it was an image from long literary series or long literature series. So some of you are into really long fantasy or sci-fi books where there's like seven books. They come out a year and a half apart and you've been reading this series for like a decade. You're on part seven and each book is 500 pages long and and now you're going to read the last book. And if the last book in the series is good, the last book will answer all the unanswered questions. You know, some of you do that with like movies or books. I have so many questions that have to be answered. It's like, well, a good book, a good ending will answer those questions. It'll bring all the character arcs that aren't completed to completion, and then all the plot holes get tightened up. They get fixed. That's what a good book does at the end of a long series. That's another way of looking at Christ uniting all things or summing up all things or answering all questions. And the last image was from music where you have dissonant chords. Dissonant chord begs to find resolve. So horror movies do this, you know, in, in an intense scene, there's something building, 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 building. I still remember um, I Am Legend with Will Smith. There's a scene where the music is just building and building and building, and the, it's tense. And all of a sudden, you know, right when he defeats a bad guy, the resolve in the music happens, and it's like a <sighs> dissonance needs resolve. What Paul is claiming 
is that in Jesus, all dissonant chords find their resolve. All plot holes get their answer. And all unanswered questions find answers in the person and work of Jesus. So that's a massive claim that in and through the death of the crucified one, all things are being united or summed up or brought together under the lordship of Jesus. It's a massive claim to make. Now, additionally, from week one, we talked about these spheres. And this is how sort of the logic of the book of Ephesians work. There's these massive spheres or domains in the Bible. And the domains and spheres are meant to come together in unity and oneness. But because of sin, they're divorced. They're fractured. They're at odds. There's hostility. There's war between them. So, for instance, heaven and earth. In the beginning, God creates heaven and earth. And the spiritual world and the earthly realm are meant to come together. They overlap. They intersect. And they're supposed to be one. There's a unity there. But because of sin and rebellion, both in earth and in the heavenlies, there's a spiritual or cosmic war taking place, and they are not together. Heaven and earth and the spiritual realities are in tension and in conflict. So rather than be one in unity, there's a divorce. Also, the Bible speaks of Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles is sort of the Bible way of saying anyone who's not ethnically Jewish. And Jews and Gentiles, they're supposed to be one humanity that lives in harmony and peace. But because of sin and rebellion, Jew and Gentile in the Bible have been torn apart and there's friction and there's tension between the two. And then there's even smaller spheres or domains in the Bible where you have husbands and wives are supposed to come together and become one. Unity, oneness, but because of sin and rebellion, there is a fracturing, and this room has countless testimonies of the fracturing and splintering and friction in marriage that causes strife, and sometimes that leads to literal divorce. And even the best marriage in this room is not without conflict. And so the image the Bible gives is one where there's massive large domains like heaven and earth, but they're not united and they're at war. And then there's other domains like Jew and Gentile and they're not united and there's friction and sin. And there's husbands and wives and they're not united, there's friction. Paul will say that what takes place in the greatest of domains, the spiritual realities, the heaven and earth struggle, that that actually has an effect on every domain and sphere beneath it. So, it's not as if one day you will die and go to heaven and that's when you enter into the spiritual reality. Rather, there's a spiritual world right now, it's at conflict and what's taking place there has immediate effects to every sphere and domain beneath it. Now that's one thing that's hard enough for modern people to believe but the even more difficult claim is, and Paul will make this in Ephesians 6 in the last week of this series, is that what you do in the most smallest of spheres, like your marriage, or how you raise your children, or how you relate to your boss or your employees, that in those spheres, how you behave actually has an effect on what's taking place in the spheres above. So that Paul can rightly say that how you live in the present by doing something as simple as resisting anger or resisting cursing your enemy, that that is actually having an effect in the spiritual reality up here. Now today we're going to deal with one of the spheres that's sort of in the middle. We're going to deal with Jew and Gentile relationships. Now this is very difficult, right, right off the bat, okay. This is going to be a sermon where many of you will feel, feel like it's not relevant because in our context, we are not immediately wrestling with Jew-Gentile issues. I mean, sometimes in our culture it comes up uh, in many places in the world, it's definitely coming up. But for the most part, we don't have, for instance, like in the early church, 45-year-old men who are Gentiles and are new Christians and are wondering if they have to get circumcised or not. That was what was going on. And so this is what's so crazy and foreign to us. A big chunk of the entirety of the New Testament is written to address Jew and Gentile relationships. How are they to come to peace with one another? What is the relationship of the Old Testament law to the New Testament Christian? 
Does a New Testament Christian need to get circumcised? Does he need to obey Old Testament dietary laws? So many of the books in the Old Testament, I mean the New Testament, are working to try and figure this out. But we are 2,000 years removed, so we're not in that conflict right now. Additionally, we're divorced from the history, which is a brutal history. See, Jews and Gentiles historically, and especially in the case of the first century, they were not getting along. There's a long history of violence. The Jewish people in the Old Testament era were always the sort of peculiar people. To a normal Gentile, a normal pagan in the ancient world, the Jews were weird. First off, they, they you know, circumcised. Who would want to do that? They had dietary laws. They dressed different. They shaved different. They didn't work on some days. It's all weird to the rest of the world. Additionally, and the thing that caused the most friction, were Jews were stubbornly insistent that there was only one God and that that one God was the God of Israel. That's it. Now, in the ancient world, you got to learn to play the politics of the day. So let's say you're a people group and you get conquered by a different people group. They become your overlords. Well... You want to survive. So what do you do? The, the, new, the new overlords want us to, to accept a few of their gods and make a sacrifice to this god and this god. I don't care. I already got 57 gods. I'll just add this one and this one, keep my head down and be done with it. You see how that works? But for the Jewish people, by the time you get to the time of Jesus, they're insistent. No way, no how. And so you get incidences where there's just absolute atrocities committed against the Jewish people because of who they are. One famous one takes place a couple hundred years before the time period here, takes place in an era called the Maccabean period. And at that time, a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphany takes over the region of Israel. And he makes uh, Torah illegal, so reading the, the Old Testament scriptures illegal. He burns down synagogues. If women are caught circumcising their children, both women and child are killed. There is the slaughter of men, women, children taking place in the streets at the climax of this persecution against the Jewish people. Antiochus Epiphany goes into the temple, which is the holiest place on earth, and then he goes into the Holy of Holies, which, by the way, only one man got to enter into once a year, the high priest. He goes into that and slaughters a pig on the altar of the Holy Holies as a sacrifice to Zeus. Then he brings in Jewish men and forces them to eat the pig before the altar. So you can see, if you're a Jewish person, the hostility you might have. And in Jesus' day, you had not Antiochus Epiphanes, you had the Roman Empire. And if a faithful Jewish man or woman wanted to question the authority and might of Rome, they might find themselves nailed to a Roman cross. So by the time you get to the first century, when Paul is preaching... There is tension and hostility and confusion about what are we to do with this thing called church. Because the first followers of Jesus are going around saying things like, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. God is now bringing together one family. The two spheres that have been at odds, the two domains of Jew and Gentile, God wants to make them unite as one under Jesus. Now, how do you go about convincing people of that after that history? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by what is called, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, sorry, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, fair warning, uh, the sentences are going to be difficult to follow, and this is one of the easier ones. Like the structure, the grammar, the syntax are very difficult to follow, so we want to pay close attention, and we'll break down it as we go, but just, yeah, they're, they're, they're hard. So in this section, Paul begins by calling out Gentiles, which is probably 90 to 95% of the people in this room. We have many ethnically Jewish followers of Jesus at this church, but predominantly Gentiles. So Paul calls Gentiles out and says, look, you remember where you came from. 
And remember, if you were here last week, Paul just got done telling everyone how they were dead in the grave without hope, dead in sin, buried, but God gave you grace. So Paul begins his argument about Jews and Gentiles coming together by telling Gentiles, no, you you recognize, man, you know where you guys came from? You were dead in sin without hope, and you were strangers to Israel. You didn't have the Old Testament prophets. You didn't keep and guard the Torah scrolls. You didn't faithfully try to follow the God of Israel's in past time. You've just been brought in fairly recently. So remember, last week you were dead and cut off from Israel. Remember this. He also tells them that they were without God. The word for without God there is atheos. It's where we get our word atheist. And they might say, no, no, I had 57 gods in my house that I worshipped. And Paul would say, no, you're atheist. You're without God. You didn't know him. You didn't experience him. You were new to this thing. So be grateful. Keep in mind, at this very moment as Paul is writing, one of the places Paul just visited, Caesarea, there is a massive conflict between Jews and Syrians there, and they are literally slaughtering each other in the streets over Jew-Gentile hostility. So although you might not presently feel the weight of the anger and the friction, this is red hot. He continues. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and reconcile us both to God in body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I warned you about the sentences. Now, let's, let's kind of tackle this piece by piece. First, and we're going to return to this, uh, Paul makes the claim that Jesus is our peace. We'll spend some more time in here in a moment, but for now, the claim is important. Jesus is our peace. Paul is not saying that Jesus, Jesus gives you an object that is your peace, but Jesus himself is the object that gives you peace. Now, there's a big difference between that. One says, I come to Jesus and he gives me something that is my peace. The other one says that Jesus in himself is my peace. There's a world of difference. And you can see the world of difference uh, on like late, not all late night preachers are bad, but the majority. Uh, And they usually function like this. Give this, sow a seed for this, do X, Y, Z, and Christ will give you X, Y, Z. And in that instance, you are doing something for Jesus in order that he gives you something that then functions as your peace. And typically for Americans, it's, it's something financial, it's material. But it manifests differently around the world. I've been, I've been to places where money is replaced with children. And so after every service, there's like a, an altar call, not for salvation, but of who wants more babies. But you see the difference. One goes to Jesus to get something. Jesus is not the object of your peace. He gives you an object that functions as your peace. Paul says, Jesus is your peace. And the reason why that is so important, because Paul has faced persecution and been in prison, and right now there are countless Christians rotting away in prison cells who the only peace they have is the person of Jesus. Not praying for a new car, a better job, clearing up of their finances, The only peace they have is the person of Jesus. I will return to this later, but for now that will suffice. He goes on. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now the question is, what's this dividing wall that Jesus has to to break down? What's the dividing wall? There's layers to this. One is probably metaphorical and one is probably literal. 
So remember, there's all kinds of friction and hostility between Jews and Gentiles, and that has created sort of like a metaphorical. You experience this in life all the time, right? Um, You have enough problems with an individual that over time a wall goes up. Maybe it's in a marriage, maybe it's with a spouse, maybe it's with family members, maybe it's with friends, maybe it's people at church. There's enough friction over time that a wall goes up. And it's like, you just conclude, no way, no way anyone getting over that wall. No way that wall's coming down. No peace can happen. And so in one sense, that's what Paul is talking about. Between Jews and Gentiles in this history, there's a wall up. Additionally, there is a literal wall between the two. Now think about this. Where is there a literal wall that divides Jews and Gentiles? It's at the temple. In the temple in Jerusalem there is a massive platform. And upon that massive platform is the temple. Now, Gentiles were only allowed in the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't go into the temple. In fact, according to Josephus, a contemporary of Paul, in Latin and Greek, upon the temple walls, it was posted that if Gentiles enter into the temple, they would face pain of death. Now think of this. If you were to ask a Jew in the first century, where is God, how would they respond? Probably respond with three things. One, God is everywhere and God is in the heavens on his throne. But they would also say, God has chosen to uniquely reveal his presence in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And if you wanted to meet and encounter the living God, you went to his temple. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. It's not because they got like legit taco trucks in those courts. It's because that's where God dwells. It's where God lives. So if you are a Gentile and you want to encounter the God of Israel, there is a literal wall there that says if you cross this, you can be killed. So you see how there's this literal wall and a metaphoric wall. They're, they're both there. And so Paul says in verse 14, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, literal and metaphoric walls by verse 15, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's a difficult sentence, but what is he referring to? What is the great controversy of the first Christians when both Jews and Gentiles are starting to follow Jesus? So we touched on earlier. What does the Gentile, who is not ethnically Jew, how does he become a Christian? Is is he Jewish? Is he Christian? How much of the Old Testament does he have to, to obey? Prior to this, there were many people who looked at the Jewish faith and they said, man, I'm tired of paganism. I got 57 gods in my house and I got seven kids. I can't remember any of these people's names anymore. And so I just, I like this one God idea. And I like the, the, the morals and the ethics of the Jewish people. So I, I think maybe I'll convert to Judaism. Now, when they came to do that, prior to Jesus, it would be like, great, buddy. There's some things you got to do. Got to give up certain things that you like to eat. Got to do some things about your dress and your beard. And we're going to have to remove something. And, and so what happened was, that, remember that metaphoric wall? People would go right up to the metaphoric wall, right there in the court of the Gentiles, and be like, I'm cool. I'm a post up right here. Here's the wall into the temple. I don't want to be far. I want to be as close as I can. I want to hear, like, I want to be able to throw stuff over and maybe God will notice me. But I'm not, I'm not going to, we're not going to do that. And so... There was people in Paul times, they're like God-fearers, people who were close enough to the Jewish faith but wouldn't go all the way because of some of the requirements. But in Jesus, Old Testament law is fulfilled, and now you see God's Spirit being poured into Gentiles who are not circumcised. And the early church decided um, by the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts that some of the requirements that were put upon Gentiles in the past were no longer required. That is a very big deal. That's why the New Testament is working it out nonstop. But here's the point. 
If you're a Gentile, you could follow Jesus instantly. It was faith and go get baptized. And now you're a part of the church. So Christ has removed the dividing wall of hostility. He's abolished the law and commandments expressed in ordinance. And then this is where, this is where it's, it's crazy. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now, you've probably read the book of Ephesians. I, I, I've done the same exact thing. I've read over that line and not truly stopped to reflect on the implications of it. All of this is occurring so that he, Jesus, might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The word for man here is Greek term anthropos. It's where you get our word anthropology. And it's probably best to think of it conceptually not as there's two men, as in there's one man and another man, and Christ is creating a third man. It's the word human. Man means human or mankind. Paul is making the claim that Jews and Gentiles have functioned as two different humans. It's like two different humanities. And what is taking place at the cross is that God is bringing, remember the spheres, bringing them together to form one new human, a new humanity. It's a brand new way to be human. And you have to understand, that's exactly how it felt in the first century. It may not feel like that now, but if you become a Christian, you are participating in a new humanity. It's a different way to be human. All other humans find their identities in ethnicity and family lineage and past and this identity or that identity. And earthly identities, I'm not saying they're insignificant or don't matter. They do. But the first Christians were saying something crazy radical for their time. There is now neither Jew nor Gentile, one new man, one new human in Christ. And the implications of that are, are numerous, but one is crazy enough. If you are a Christian today, your first and foremost fundamental identity is not Canadian, Nigerian, or American. It's Christian. It's Christian. That is your first and foremost fundamental identity. I'm not saying other things don't matter, but I'm saying what's, what's primary is you're a Christian. There is a Christian girl who's being tortured for her faith in the early church period, and they asked her, her family of origin and ethnicity, where she from? And she responded under torture saying, I am a Christian, I am a Christian, I am a Christian. Because all other identities come underneath your primary one. You're a Christian. And God is bringing together things that were at odds, at war, in hostility, and he's bringing peace between them. One early church writer talked about it like this. He said, there's been two races of human beings, Jews and Gentiles. Those were the two races, but now there's a third race. The third race is the Christian, the new human. Now, those are old categories, so they don't import into the modern world well. But you see the idea. It's a different way. It's a completely different way. One of the beautiful things I saw, um, we read the book of Ephesians out loud here. Raise your hand if you attended that. Um, so a big chunk of people. We had, we had like 100 people come out just to hear the book of Ephesians read out loud. It was an amazing, awesome, beautiful time. There was tons of food, which made it even cooler. Um, but as we were standing in the back, a couple of, of the pastors remarked on the beauty of that. Because we're just reading, no, no, no preaching, no point, no, just read the book. But in that room of about 100 people, we saw people of different socioeconomic backgrounds. And as a pastor, I know some of your situations. I know some of you are doing very well. And some of you are barely making it. But in that room, gathered around Christ and his word, there was people across the socioeconomic spectrum. There was people of different ethnicities in that room. There were people of different ages. There was many, many young people there. Greg Quirk and Kevin Curzonay were there as well. <laughs> kind of balance that, you know, you know what I'm saying? They look good for their age, man, but they old. 
But do you see how the new humanity functions? Human beings for thousands of years find their identity in nation, in ethnicity, in family of origin, in this thing, in this. Sometimes it's even in a career or, or a, how about this? How many Americans find their identity in a team that they're not even on, that they just watch weekly? <laughs> what are you first and foremost? I am a Christian, I am a Christian, I am a Christian. Now, the reason why this is so important is God gathers people from different backgrounds, different histories, different, different ideologies, and he brings them together and says, you now have to live in peace and harmony and form the church. There's no way you're ever going to get along with church people who are from different backgrounds unless the center point of your gathering is Jesus. If it's anything else, you're always going to have a fight. It's got to be Jesus. So it's this new humanity thing, a crazy concept, revolutionary for the ancient world. He goes on. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Oh, actually, this is, let's, I meant to, to read this whole section again because it's one big giant thing that we just broke down. So hear, hear it all in one piece. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new anthropos, one new human, one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's a mystery and a paradox here. How does Christ kill the hostility? Christ kills the hostility by himself being killed. He becomes our peace and slays the hostility by he himself being slain. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. That's us, Gentiles. And peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's another crazy sentence, right? That's why I always tell people, man. I always tell people. Bible reveals the character of God. And he don't seem to be that concerned with grammar, so you all need to lay off of me. <laughs> you know? So. Tons of stuff in here, and the sentence is complex, but for, for today, I just want to focus on one line. Because of this bringing together, this uniting of Jew and Gentile into this new family, every single person, whether Jew or Gentile, who claims to follow Jesus, can claim to be no longer a stranger or alien, but a fellow citizen with the saints and members of the household of God. So there's two identity shifts right there. You are now a citizen of God's kingdom and you are a family member in his household. Those are powerful terms. Where is your citizenship first and foremost? In heaven. You're gonna be here in heaven for all eternity. You're down here in whatever country of origin for a blip. You are a citizen first and foremost of heaven. Your first allegiance is to heaven and its king. Secondly, you're brought into the family of God. Now, for some of you, this is a, tre a tremendous word because you didn't have a good family. Your family was broken. Your dad left. Your mom left. Your parents split, and, or maybe they didn't, but it was, it was as if they, neither one of them were there. When you become a follower of Jesus, you are brought into a new family. You have a new big brother and a new father. And the father and the big brother love you. And the father sent the son to die on your behalf so that you can make it into that family. You were dead in sin, remember? 
but the son died so that his blood might purchase you. And so whatever your family background is, whatever horrors you might have in your past, whoever might have let you down, whoever you might have trusted that betrayed you, you now belong to the good father. You're in his household. You're a member of his family. And lastly, Paul concludes with this one sentence. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, you could easily just read this over and keep going, but there's some heavy stuff here. You're the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. What is the dwelling place of God in the Old Testament? The temple, right? And the temple language has been here the whole time. Now Paul is saying, you are being brought together to make the dwelling place of God. The Bible affirms two things. One, it says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So you as an individual have the presence of God. It says that once or twice. However, more often than that, it talks about the believers, the church, the gathering together of Christ followers as the dwelling place of God. So yes, you as an individual are our temple of the Holy Spirit. But more importantly than that, the Bible talks about numerous times the gathering up of God's people, the church being the temple. Now, why is that important? What is the best, the most beautiful, the most awe-inspiring, fun, fantastic place on the face of the earth? Now, some of you, I know what you want to say. Don't do it. You're at church. You immediately wanted to say, Disneyland. (laughs) Well, of course, Disneyland. That's a magical kingdom, bro. Go to Disneyland. If you were a faithful Israelite in the Old Testament, where is the the best, the most beautiful, most awe-inspiring place? It's the temple. The temple. Because that's where God lives. That's where God lives. And the architecture was, was beautiful, was magnificent. But even more than that, again, it's because that's where God lives. Better is one day in his courts than thousands elsewhere. So a faithful Old Testament believer would say, man, the best place, the place I want to go, the place where I want to spend my life is at the temple near the presence of God. Now Christ, when he dies... The veil in the temple, the curtain is torn. The dividing wall that kept Gentiles is out. God's spirit is out. The temple could never contain him. And now he's filling followers of Jesus with his presence, which means when we gather together, we are functioning as the dwelling place of God. Which means the best, the most beautiful, the most awe-inspiring, fantastic, fun place on the face of the earth is the church. Not the building, but the gathering of God's people. Now, some of you are all paused because you're like, mm, not buying it, not buying it. You've got to understand this. What is taking place spiritually right now? You've got to understand this. No matter how old the building, no matter how annoying the people no matter how bad the sermon was that Sunday, no matter how many songs they played that you didn't like, no matter how long the announcement, no matter how tiny the font was that you couldn't read in the bulletin, when God's people gather, it is the most beautiful thing on the face of the earth. Hands down, nothing else comes close because it is the time and space where people leave behind earthly identities and center on the person and work of Jesus. You are no longer this, you are no longer that, you are no longer this, you are no longer defined by this past mistake, you are no longer defined by this past relationship. You, first and foremost and fundamentally, are a Christian, and if a Christian, you are in Christ Jesus, and if in Christ Jesus, a citizen and heir to the kingdom and a family member adopted and brought into his presence. That's who you are. And whatever else is going on, That's who we are right now in this moment. That's why it is holy, sacred space and time. Not the building, the people. And so you got to tell yourself, man, 
Even if it don't look, I mean, really? Yeah, really. This is the, this is the dwelling place. You individually and the church corporately is the place where God is choosing to dwell. Now, I said I'd return to this as, as, as we, we, we tie it in and bring it together. How, how is this peace purchased? How does it come about? Well, it, it goes back to those fears again. Remember, God created heaven and earth to be, to be one, united. And because of sin, those realities are torn apart. Very early on in the Old Testament, God chooses a guy named Abraham and makes a covenant with him. And he says, in and through Abraham's people, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And I'm going to give you a people, you're going to have a place, you're going to have a location. And God eventually gives the Jewish people Israel, and he gives them a capital city, Jerusalem. Jerusalem in Hebrew means Jerusalem, city of peace. And it's there in the city of peace that the temple is built, where God uniquely manifests his presence. And in the Old Testament, there's this hope that as God's people, the Israelites, were faithful to God and obeying the terms of the covenant, that all the nations from the world would gather upon the holy hill, Jerusalem, and come to God's temple and finally recognize the God of Israel as the one true God. Now, the story of the Old Testament is hoping and longing and waiting in in anticipation for this to occur, but it never happens because the Jewish people in the Old Testament are just like the rest of the people who God creates. They have faults and failures and mistakes. And so by the time you get to the life of Jesus, it's not the story of a united Jewish kingdom under a Jewish king who have a beautiful temple and all the nations are gathering there to worship. It's not the case. But the New Testament says at this point is something that no one would have predicted. The New Testament says at this point, God himself, Jesus, comes. The Prince of Peace comes to the city of peace. And the residents of the city of peace crucify the Prince of Peace in order that he might become our peace. This is the logic here. The Prince of Peace comes to the city of peace, but rather than finding peace, he is killed and put upon the Roman cross. But in doing so, mysteriously and paradoxically, and subverting everyone's expectation, it's in and through his death that we find our peace. He absorbs the sin and the violence and humanity's wrath. And coincidentally, Jews and Gentiles who are always at odds, it's like the only time they got together and united on the same thing is when both Jew and Gentile got together and conspired to kill the Prince of Peace. That's what the Gospels are trying to get you to see. In history, historic, historically, because of racism, people try to pin like the crucifixion on Jesus on this people, on this people, or it was the Jewish people. Like, you don't get the, the, the story is telling you The only time humanity becomes united and hold hands is when we all wanted God dead. But the mystery hidden before the ages was that God himself, the Prince of Peace, would die on the hill of the city of peace in order that he might purchase our peace. And he's bringing together not only Jew and Gentile, but people from every tribe, tongue, and nation into one new family, adopted children in the family of God. Now, there's a couple implications for this that are practical for us today as we, as we close. If you're a Christian, you are part of the new humanity. You're a new people. You have a new family and a new identity. And God says, you are the temple, the dwelling place of God, individually and corporately. So it begs the question, what happened or was supposed to happen at the temple that now I should be doing? If I'm a new temple... What do temples do or what do temples ought to do? Well, one, temples is where people were reconciled to God. Temples were the place of forgiveness. And temples were the place that you met God. You went to the temple to meet God. Which means if believers are now the new temple, we should be a people that embody those types of things. Are you a reconciling people? Are you a forgiving type of people? Are you the type of person and are we the type of people that when people encounter us, they meet God? One of the best compliments you can get 
from someone who isn't a Christian. Say they're an atheist and they're going through a lot of things or an atheist and they say, man, I don't even believe in God. But when I talk to you, I feel as if God's comforting me. Because God's presence is working in and through you. So this is why this is so important. Because in the world we live in, man, there's some need of reconciliation. There's some need for forgiveness. There's a need for people to be properly introduced to the king of heaven. And so are we as God's people doing that? Are you a reconciling person? Are you a forgiving type of person? Because here's the truth, man. That's hard. That's really hard. Because no one wants to embody that. I don't embody that spirit for the most part. I have to go before God and ask him to work. Because I'm that type of person. I don't want to reconcile or forgive. I like to be right and prove people wrong. (laughs) Follow me here. What type of culture are we living in? Are Christians a type of people who enjoy proving the other side wrong more than properly introducing them to the king of heaven? Because I'm telling you, I fall into that. I meet people and they have an opinion and I'm like, you think you've thought through that, man. I've thought through that a thousand different ways. I've already read 15 books on that. Let me show you why your position is so stupid. Have Christians become more concerned with being right than being a temple? Because those always don't, those don't mean the same thing always. They don't mean the same thing always. If your spirit is just out to prove people stupid, you ain't going to be bringing people to Jesus. But can you show someone gracefully and tactfully, no, I, I don't agree with you here. I, I, think, I think you're off here. Let me explain myself. And are we excited to introduce people to God? Do we still care about the the lost? Because temples bring people in the presence of God. One of the things I've noticed about American cultures right now is like the greatest type of conversion that Americans seek after is converting someone to a political party. Now here's a question for you. Are you more concerned with converting someone to a certain political party or position? Are you more concerned with that than converting them to the living God? Would you get more excited about proving someone wrong or than becoming a Christian? Now, many of you in good conscience could say, I don't worry about any of that stuff. I'm okay. No, but if you're like me, you wrestle with that. I like to prove people wrong. I don't want to be forgiving. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you know the burden and weight and responsibility of that? You know what God's entrusted you with? He's entrusted you with his spirit. You are his people, adopted. You were called to reconcile and to forgive and draw people into his presence. And so, my challenge as we enter into communion, the usher's gonna pass out communion, is are we living that identity out? Is that the type of person you are? What people say of you, even if they're not Christian and they disagree with you on a thousand things, would they go, man, I disagree on religion, on politics, in sports, you know, he's a Raider fan, as like everything. But you know what, that, that, that dude's a good dude. I know he cares for me. He seeks what's best for me. And, and he really wants me to know his God, but I know it's because he loves me. Can you, can you see the difference in spirit? There's a different spirit that's embodied when you participate in those things. You are no longer any of your former identities. You are first and foremost a Christian. As the ushers continue to pass those out, I'd like us just to to reflect on those three things. Just think about it. Take some time. Do you embody those? Are you a reconciler or are you an instigator? Do you like to pick fights or bring peace? Are you quick to point out other people's errors without offering any forgiveness? This is an important one because our culture doesn't have any doctrine of forgiveness or atonement. And what I mean by that, I've talked about it in the past, is that our culture will find something you did 30 years ago and try to ruin your life for it. There's no room for forgiveness. It's time Christians teach the world about forgiveness. 
It's time Christians teach the world about reconciliation. And we do so by introducing people to our God. To our God, who forgave us when we were dead in our sins. Please stand as we take communion. The bread, Jesus tells us to remember his death. And what are we remembering? We're remembering the prince of peace who came to the city of peace and was slain in order that he in himself might become our peace. And so Jesus, we ask you to be our peace in this moment. Jesus says the cup is the cup of the new covenant. It's his blood. It's the blood of the new covenant. Christ shed his blood. You are a blood-bought individual. You were not bought with earthly currency. You were not bought with earthly currency. You were bought with the blood of a king. And he purchased you and adopted you into his family. And he purchased you not to make you a slave, but he purchased you to make you free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so, Lord, we give you thanks. Father, we ask that we would embody the vocation of the temple, the job description of the temple. That we would be a reconciling people, forgiving people. A, a, a type of people that introduces people to you. And we pray that our spirits would be kind and gentle and not get tainted by the world. That we would not hate our enemies, but that we would love them. And as we go out today, Lord, from last week, your word tells us that before the foundations of the world, you prepared good works for us to find and to walk in. And so as temples of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask that you would reveal to us the good works that you would have of us and that we would walk in them and in turn point people to your son. And it's in his name we pray, amen.